0: In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. This parable um, that Christ spoke to the people is called the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Um, and in this parable, um, the, the, the parable represents the, the, the nation of Israel and the state of the nation of Israel. So um, in this parable, there is this vineyard owner and he uh, appoints certain people to be caretakers, to be vine dressers of his vineyard. He goes away. And when the time comes, he calls these vine dressers and he asks them to give him um, part of the, the fruit of the vineyard. And they refuse. And the, the servants that the, the vineyard owner sends, they kill. And he sends one after the other and they kill them. And then finally he says, I will send my own son. And then they kill the son as well. Okay. And so this represents what? This represents the work of God that God was sending the prophets one by one to the people to get them to uh, repent of their sins, to get them to change their ways. But they kept rejecting all the prophets. They killed the prophets. And then finally, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, but yet they also killed him. So um, uh, Jesus Christ was saying this parable to the Pharisees, okay, to kind of illuminate them and to make them understand that this is the way that they have been, Acting. This is the the way that the nation of Israel has been acting all throughout the Old Testament, um, and so on. And he then he asked this question: "Is what is the vineyard dresser to do?" Okay, and he said what that he's going to uh, give the vineyard to somebody else. Essentially, saying that the the people of God are no longer going to be the Jews, but is going to be um, everyone who accepts Christ, which is now the Gentiles primarily. Okay. Um, we see that. Despite the fact that there was a long period of time where it appears that the vineyard owner is a victim where it appears that every effort that he makes um, is is futile and doesn't bring about any effort. He sends uh, servant after servant, he sends his own son and even his own son is killed. It, it it looks like when you read this parable that the, 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 the vineyard owner is failing, okay? Um, and even when Christ is quoting um, from the Psalms and he speaks about how the chief cornerstone, who is Christ, is rejected, right? Is rejected by the people, okay? But at the end of this parable, it says uh, this in Luke 20, verse 18. It says, whoever falls on that stone, referring to the Messiah, who is the chief cornerstone, will be broken, But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Okay, so the Messiah is this chief cornerstone, the foundation of the church, the foundation of all things. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Essentially meaning what? You cannot overcome him. Okay, you cannot overcome the Lord. No matter what you do, you cannot defeat him. No amount of your effort will confound him. Nothing that you do will overcome him. Okay. So we live in an era where oftentimes when we look around us, when we look at the media, when we look at society, when we look at the actions of people, when we look at the opinions of people, when we look at the the the, the skewed and twisted logic of people, when we when we when we look at how everything around us seems to be insanity, okay. Um we might look and feel that God has been overcome, that the people of God have been overcome, that we have been defeated. There's a sense of defeat. There's a sense of, of we, we are not able to hold on. We are not able to maintain. We are not able to teach the truth. And instead the truth has been twisted all around us and maybe we feel like we are losing, okay? Um, and this makes us to feel defeated, makes us to feel in despair. Like what is happening around us? You know, it it reminds us of the prophet Elijah. Prophet Elijah looked around and he saw that there was nobody who was worshiping God and he fell into despair. And, and, And in his despair, he was saying to God, there is no one who worships you. Right. There is no one. As though he was believing that he was the only one. And God responded to him and said, no, there is many who worship me. Right. And here in this verse. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. It reminds us of the power of the Lord. It reminds us of the power of God. The people that lived at the time of the Messiah, all of the apostles, all the people that believed in Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, to be the son of God, they saw him as hope, hopeful. They saw him and they looked at him with hope that he was going to change things, that he was not going to be overcome that he was not going to be defeated. And so when they saw him on the cross, they also had all these feelings of despair. They had these feelings of, we have been defeated, right? All of our hopes have been dashed. Everything that we, we thought was about to take place and was about to happen has been crushed when they looked at Christ on the cross, right? And they were extremely disappointed. They were, they were completely like, every, they were scattered. Everything was, 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 you know, had, had failed, And yet what they observed in the cross was not a moment of weakness for the Lord, but it was the moment of greatest power, showing his greatest power, accomplishing the mission that he had been called to accomplish, to do what he had been called to do. Okay, and so when we look around us at the world, we shouldn't look at it with eyes of despair, to look at it as a place that is out of control to look at it as a place that, you know, we have been defeated by it. Instead, we should look at it as God is using this situations that we are in, in order to bring about his kingdom. Okay, how is he doing it? When is he doing it? In what way is it going to happen? God has not revealed this to us. But what did he reveal to us? He said, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder." He is reminding us of his power. He's reminding us of who he is. Nothing can touch him. Nothing will move him. Nothing will confound him. Nothing will confuse him. Nothing will deter him. Nothing will slow him down. Nothing will make him change his mind. Nothing will change him in any means. So we can rely on him completely because he is unchangeable. We can trust him completely because he is reliable. He is responsible. He is truthful everything that he says will come to be okay and 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 so we trust in him okay so even if it feels like okay even if it feels like evil is winning and the end christ said what that he is the true victor that he is the one who is to win okay so we ask ourselves how can we maintain hope in the midst of the chaos of this world that is around us right we have to remember again this verse: whoever falls on that stone will be broken, and whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So let's contemplate a little bit on the characteristics of God and, and who he is and remind ourselves of, of that he is the chief cornerstone, that nothing nothing can touch him. Okay, so first is we know that his plan is more steadfast than any plans of the world, right? In, in their supreme intelligence and cleverness, right, the people that wanted to build the Tower of Babel, right, they wanted to do it. Why? Because they wanted to demonstrate their power. They wanted, They believed that they could defeat the Lord. They defeat. They believed that they were more clever than him. They said to themselves, if God is to send another flood like he did before, well, we can climb up our large tower, and in this tower we will be safe from him. We will reach the heavens. Where God is, we will be like him. We can use all our ingenuity to be like him. Okay. And so, in that sense, the people that lived in that age were very much like the people today. That even though many people today don't even believe in God, but they try to be God in their attitude, they try to be God in their power and their control and what they believe they can accomplish, just like those who were building the Tower of Babel. Okay. But what is it that God did to these people? right? Were these people able to reach heaven? Were they able to complete the plans that they had? No, it says in Genesis 11, therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth, okay? So so these people were, were defeated, okay? Because God's plan cannot be defeated. There is no way. His plan whatever his promises are, will happen. They will happen despite anything that happens in the world, despite any evil plot by evil people with evil intentions, no matter how many of them there are, no matter how confused the world is, no matter how deceived the world is, no matter what technologies exist, no matter what you know, wicked you know, groups and, and plans and deception and conniving exist in the world, whether here in the United States or in other countries internationally, even the Antichrist, okay? No matter how deceived people might be, God is going to accomplish his plan, right? And and nothing moves him, nothing phases him, nothing makes him feel like, uh, okay, things are going out of control, nothing. Maybe we feel this way when we, because we are in this world as a part of the world and feeling maybe scared and confused by it. not understanding it or deceived by it but god is not deceived and god is not confused okay his plan is steadfast whatever he said was going to happen will happen and nothing can can defeat his plan but again what is the timing of this plan we don't know when the timing is okay but we are called to wait in faith for it wait in faith not wait in fear not wait in in terror but to wait in faith. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, it says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Whatever God has said is to come to pass, it will indeed happen. We don't know when, but God says, wait for it. It will surely come, okay? It will surely come. So this is the first thing for us to remember, is that God is still in control. Whatever God has, has said is going to happen will indeed happen. The second thing to remember is that God's power is greater than that of the world, okay? His, his power is greater than that power that is in the world, okay? We look at the power of certain people, certain individuals, people do anything to gain power, you know, and we look at politics, for instance, everyone just wants power, that, that's it. People don't care about the truth, People don't care about about the people. People care about power, and that's what they want, is they want power for themselves to mold the world according to their own image, according to their own vision of what the world should be, Okay, And so we look at these powers, and we compare ourselves with them, and we say, these people, I cannot stop these people. These people are too powerful. These people, if they come into power and in their corruption, they will destroy the world, Okay. But, but we don't have to rely on our own power, nor do we feel like the people that are in power are greater than us because God is the one who has the greatest power, right? It reminds us of the story of Elisha, the prophet, and his servant whose name was Gehazi, okay? This uh, servant and Elisha, they were surrounded by the Syrian army, right? The Syrian army was surrounding them, preparing to attack. And Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, was afraid. And so Elisha turned to him, okay, and he said this. He says, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. These are the spiritual army, the spiritual hosts that were all surrounding Elisha and Gehazi, right? Protecting them, fighting for them. So they didn't have to be afraid of the Syrian army who was around them. And one thing to note about this is it didn't say that this army just suddenly appeared. This army was there already from the beginning, right? Elisha could see it. Elisha walked with the knowledge and with the comfort and, and with the, the, the awareness and the perception of this army. That he would go wherever he would go. He saw this army with him, protecting him, fighting for the Lord. And this army is greater than the Syrian army. is greater than any army of the earth. It's greater than any power on the earth. But Gehazi was afraid because he did not see this army. He didn't believe in it. He couldn't see it with his eyes. And so he, he became frightened. So that is the difference between Elisha and Gehezi. It's not that one of them had power and the other didn't have power it's that one of them was aware of the power of god with him at all times and the other was not aware that that power existed and that power was with him so for us to feel comforted when we see these great powerful people corporations entities politicians countries doing all the things that they do contrary to what is right and what is truthful Right. We should not feel like Gehezi where we just feel kind of helpless. Like, what are we going to do when we're surrounded by all these corrupt, powerful figures and countries and, and all these wicked things? No, instead, we should be like Elisha, where we say, I believe that the army of the Lord is with us. I believe that the army of the Lord encamps around us, protects us, is fighting for us. The power of God is greater than any power that is in the world. And this has been confirmed time and time again. Right. So we should always remember this right whoever falls on that stone will be broken but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder the third thing to remember is that the knowledge of god is greater than any knowledge that's in the world okay so often we hear arrogant claims by people in the world people that do not believe in god people that believe they understand everything about the universe about the world about life about anything and they claim in arrogance that they have this great knowledge and that it is because they have this great knowledge and intellect that all people should listen to them and they have such influence in the world because of this great knowledge that they seem to have that we maybe who do not have any knowledge compared to them look at them and we stand in awe of them that we begin to try to make an argument against them and we can't make an argument And it's so difficult to make any argument against them because of their great intellect and knowledge and that we our arguments are seen as feeble. Our arguments are seen as as ignorance compared to the arguments of these people who are filled with such great knowledge. Okay, we look at the example of Job. Okay, Job was a very righteous man. But he had one failing and that failing is that he was self-righteous. He could not believe that any of the calamities that came upon him in his life could have remotely been because of some sin that he had committed. We know that God did not punish Job because of sin, because Job was a righteous man. God was testing Job. He wasn't punishing Job, okay? But Job in his trying to understand what was happening to him when all his friends were telling him, maybe there is some sin that you committed, right? Job completely discounted the possibility that there was any sin that he committed, okay? And all of him and all his friends, and they were all talking, as, assuming all kinds of things that they didn't understand whatsoever, okay? At the, at the end of all of these chapters, okay, that's are, that, that Job and his friends are speaking, God finally begins to talk, okay? And he says, who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? Who is this who is speaking and has no knowledge whatsoever of what they are speaking? And then he begins and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. You are making all these claims that you have an understanding of your life, an understanding of the world, an understanding of your sin, as understanding of all this. Who are you to claim any understanding whatsoever? Where were you when I created the earth? And he goes on and on. And he says, do you know how that I make it to rain? Have you seen the storehouses, you know, of the of the rain? Have you seen the storehouses? Have you seen all? Do you know how I make the animals to do all the things that they do? Do you know how I take care of all of these animals? You know, it's like you're standing there in the presence of the one with really like the true knowledge and you can't do anything but remain silent. And this is Job and the others with him remained completely silent in the presence of God asking him these questions because they had no answer. They couldn't answer where they were when God laid the foundations of the earth because they didn't exist and they have no idea how it came to be. Mankind today claims to have such great knowledge that this knowledge makes them feel like they are gods that they can do all things, that there is nothing that they cannot do, and that they do not need the existence of God, that they can explain everything without God, that they are gods in themselves, right? But we do not have the answers. And not only do we not have scientific answers, we don't have the answer of how should we live? Do we, in all of our greatness and all of our knowledge, do we look at the society around us and say, yeah, we figured it out? We figured out how to have a peaceful society. We, fi- we figured out how to be kind to one another. We figured out how to, to, to love one another. We figured out how to sacrifice for one another. I haven't even figured out how to control my own thoughts, how to control my own emotions, how to control my own temper, how to control my own lusts, how to control my own envy. If, if no individual can ev- has even figured out how to control themselves, let alone to control other people, let alone to control nature or understand it, Right? Who am I to, compl- to, to, to to assume or to claim that I have any kind of knowledge? God's knowledge is greater than any other knowledge. And so we, when we look to him, we should look to him and be humbled. right? Not to look to him and to say, you know what? We have greater knowledge than you, God. We know more than you. No, that's foolishness. right? It's foolishness. So when we look at the, those who claim knowledge, we shouldn't be intimidated by them. Instead, we could say, our God is the one with the true knowledge. Our God is the one who knows how he laid the foundations of the earth. And no one else knows the answer to these questions. No one else knows. It is only through the power of God that we are able to be transformed. It is only through the power of God that we could have a society that functions properly. Right? It is not the the, the political knowledge. It is not the philosophical knowledge. It's not any of that that's going to solve any problem. It's the real power of God, of the Holy Spirit working in us that will allow us to live in kindness, in joy, in gentleness, in peace, right? The world has none of this, right? The world cannot claim any of it. And the world will never succeed without God in the world. The fourth thing to remember is that the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom that is in the world, okay? We read in James chapter three, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Who can claim in the world that they have this? What philosophy in the world produces this, right? True wisdom is peaceful and impartial. How do people use knowledge today? People use knowledge in order to crush others. People use knowledge to ridicule others. People use knowledge, right, and and their power in order to destroy others, right, to prove that they are superior, to prove that they are better. This is not the wisdom of God, right? Who is God? God is the one who came and was the meekest. He was the humblest. He was the one who allowed himself to suffer for the sake of others as a demonstration of his love for them and to save them, right? This is the wisdom of God, right? This is not This is this is this is the way that God, even though he is the most powerful, even though he is the most knowledgeable, he doesn't use what he has to harm others or to, you know, bolster himself or to boast in himself. Instead, he uses this to demonstrate love. Right. Willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits without partiality. And yet our world is not wise. Our world is extremely foolish despite those who claim such great knowledge, it is extremely foolish. All these people are foolish, right? Living in foolishness, that after a period of 80, 90, 100 years of boasting, of, of, of expressing our greatness, that we find ourselves in the grave, right? What, 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 you know, what more foolishness could there be? What is it that I have sowed? What is it that I have sowed that I will then reap? What good was it all of this, knowledge and power and everything that i had that i'm going to leave it at the grave is this wisdom how am i using my life is this wisdom this is not wisdom so even though many people can claim knowledge they cannot claim wisdom by any means is there any wisdom in the way that the world is is working today there is no wisdom it is self-destructive not only from an individual perspective from society perspective it is self-destructive from a world perspective it is self-destructive There is no wisdom, right? And he says, what the wisdom, the heavenly wisdom, what is the sign of heavenly wisdom? That it is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality, without hypocrisy. We don't find any of this anywhere. We don't find any of these characteristics in the world. Sadly, there is no wisdom in the world. It is only God's wisdom that can produce this. And sadly, God's wisdom is not present in the world right now. The fifth point is that the love of God is greater than any love that is in the world. Okay, In 1 John 3, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. What manner of love the Father has bestowed that we should be called children of God. That God would take us who are the lowest who are the sinners, who are the ones who betrayed him, who are the ones who crucified him. And he should look to us and he say, this is how much I love you, that I consider you, not only my friends, but my children, that I would sacrifice myself for you. This is the love of God. The love of God was demonstrated to us, not simply with words, that God would remain in heaven and shower us with nice words and say, oh, I love you so much. No, it was demonstrated with the action of his incarnation, of his suffering and death, crucifixion. That is the love of God, right? His self-sacrifice was greater than any other act of love in the world. But how do we respond in the world when I am wrong? Even the smallest thing, even the smallest word, even the smallest look that someone might look to me in a way that I don't like, We feel justified in our anger, and our hatred, and revenge. This is the way of the world. The way of the world has no love. The world claims to exalt love. The world claims that love is so important. What the world is exalting is lust. What the world is exalting is self-love. Whatever makes me feel good, that is what I exalt. Whatever makes me happy, that's what I worship. That is the way of the world. That is not the way of God. God did not do anything that made himself feel good. God did not exalt anything of his own happiness, of his own joy, of, of his own delight. He brought himself down to the lowest in, a, in, a, in an act that cannot be comprehended of him debasing himself to become a human being and not an exalted human being, not a king on the earth, not an emperor, not a man living in luxury, but a man living like in, in such, such a humble way and allowing others, his, his children, his creation, to harm him. This is the love of God. So we reject others and we you know, fight against others and we hate others for the smallest thing, and yet look what is it that God has done for us. So the love that's in the world, there, there is, there, I don't see love in the world. There are acts of love, yes, maybe here and there, but what is the system of the world? The system of the world is hatred. The system of the world is revenge. The system of the world is attacking others. Even while we claim that we are tolerant, even while we claim that we are accepting, even while we claim that we appreciate love and we exalt the concept of love, and yet we show no love. We show no love even as we are exalting love. This is not the same love of God. This is not the way that God demonstrated love to us. Okay? The sixth thing to remember is that the beauty of God is greater than any beauty that's in the world, okay? In Psalm 27, it says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The beauty of God is greater than any beauty that is in the world. Again, we go back to the idea of lust. The beauty that is in the world often is what I lust after, okay? Is what I lust after. It's a beauty that captivates my senses. It's a physical beauty. It's a, it's a beauty that fills my senses, okay? But the beauty of God is not a beauty just of senses. It's not just a beauty that I can see. It's a beauty that I experience at such a depth that is a transforming beauty, Okay? It fills me with joy and comfort that is endless, that is without end. That is not something that lasts for a minute. It is not something that, that you know, can be self-destructive. It is completely, you know, fills me. It doesn't inflame my senses with lust, with cravings. No, it is something that, that I experience and I, I, I immerse myself in the beauty of God and I enjoy the beauty of God for eternity, you know. This is the beauty. Right In the world, those who seek beauty seek after these temporal things that last for one day and are gone the next. Like in the Proverbs when it says what? That, the, 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 that one day the flower is blooming and then the next day it's faded away. Right, That's the kind of beauty that is in the world. The things that we cannot grasp. The things that are there just momentarily. That we try to hold on to it and we cannot hold on to it. That is the beauty that we find in the world. The beauty of God is transcendent. It has no end and it pierces the soul. It is something that, that lifts us up from our state to a completely different state, to make us experience God and to feel different than we can ever feel in any other way. And it is a beauty that is so great that we never get bored of it, that we never lose interest in it, that it is something that we wish to experience in him for eternity. This is the true beauty of God far greater than any beauty that's in the world. Number seven, his mercy is greater than that that is in the world, okay? In Ephesians 2, it says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God does not give us what we deserve. God does not give us what we deserve. We betray him, he forgives us. Okay, we betray him, he forgives us. God is merciful, right? Where do we find this mercy in the world? We find nothing of this. We find hatred and anger and revenge. We do not find this mercy. We do not find forgiveness, right? We struggle to forgive, right? And sometimes we even condemn those people that forgive. I remember... Um, there was a, a case in the news, like maybe about a year ago or so, um, about um, uh, uh, a cop, a white cop that shot a black man um, in his apartment because she thought that it was her apartment and that he was in the apartment. It was a mistake that she made. This man, okay, his family, I believe his brother or someone else in his family, forgave this woman and, and he spoke to her about the forgiveness of God and actually in the courtroom, he gave her a hug, okay? People condemned him. People, people said, how is it that you can do this? How is it that you can forgive her, right? Forgiveness, even though it sounds nice, the concept of forgiveness, but true forgiveness is condemned by the world. We, we exalt revenge. We exalt getting what you deserve, right? Getting what you deserve. I'm not speaking about justice. There is justice in the world. Okay, we should, we, we, sh- we should exalt justice in the world. We should bring justice in the world. But there can be justice and forgiveness together, right? Like a person can reap the consequences of their actions while at the same time we accept their sincere repentance, that they have sincerely repented. But we live in a world that does not accept repentance. You know, we talk about the cancel culture. It doesn't matter what is it that I have done or repented of, if if I make any mistake, then people seek to destroy me. Seek people seek to destroy me because of any mistake that I did in my life, no matter how long ago it was, no matter how hypocritical it is that those people who judge me and attack me have done the same things as me, right? And yet I will offer you no mercy. Right? I will give you no mercy. I will not. I I, I will not overlook anything, because in my hypocrisy. I'm expecting perfection from you and I'm calling you out for any mistake that you make, but I don't want you to find out my weaknesses, right? Even when my weaknesses are identical to yours. We do not live in a society of mercy. We live in a society of judgment, right? Who will judge every person while at the same time exalting love, exalting tolerance, exalting acceptance, where all I really mean when I say that is I want you to accept me, but I'm not going to accept you, right? The last point I want to mention today is that we should remember that the compassion of God is greater than any compassion that's in the world. In Matthew 9:36, it says about Christ, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. When Christ came, he saw the plight of humanity. He saw the weaknesses of humanity he saw the suffering of humanity and he had compassion for us right he is not simply a god who says these are my commandments follow the commandments and if you don't follow my commandments then i will crush you then i will punish you then i will reject you no he is a god who understands suffering he's a god who comes and he touches those who are suffering those who are crying the leprous right those who are who are rejected by society those are the ones whom he has compassion on God has truly love for all people, even those who are sinners, when he goes to the tax collectors, when he goes to the harlots, when he goes to those people who have been outcast from society, but truly have a desire to return, but truly have a desire to change. He has compassion on those who suffer, right? And he calls us to have compassion as well. He calls us to have compassion on the homeless. He calls us to have compassion on the fatherless, He calls us to have compassion on the widows and the orphans. All of us, right? God comes and he has compassion. Even those who hate him, God has compassion on them. So what God demonstrates to us is what is true love? What is true love? His love is greater. His mercy is greater. His compassion is greater. He comes to us and demonstrates this is how we should live. This is how we should live. And he gives us a model of how we should live, contrary to how the world functions today. So in conclusion, while we look around us and see all kinds of chaos and, 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 and a twisted sense of love, twisted philosophies, confusion, deception, we should not fall into despair. We should not fall into despair. We should remember that God is greater than everything that we see around us and that God promised. And he said, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. His plan is more steadfast than that of the world. His power is greater than that in the world. His knowledge is greater than that in the world. His wisdom is greater. His love is greater. His beauty is greater. His mercy is greater. His compassion is greater. He is the chief cornerstone. No one can move him. No one can harm him. No one can change him. There is nothing that anyone can do, no matter how much they deny him, he will still remain. He is the Pantocrator. He is the one who will remain eternally. Even when everybody else has turned to dust, he will remain. He is the only one that truly exists. We derive our existence from him. We have nothing without him. His plans will not be confounded. He said, For my thoughts are, are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He is higher, he is greater. Instead of criticizing him, instead of condemning him, instead of rejecting him, instead of discounting him and his the possibility of his existence, even. The world should look to him. The world should look to him and say, we should live like he lived. We should do as he has asked, that it is through him that we will be healed. It is through him that we will find the answers we're looking for. It is through him that our society will truly function. It is through him that we can actually love one another. It is through him that we can let go of hate and accept mercy and forgiveness, not only for ourselves, but for others as well. We pray and we ask God to confirm our faith, to remind us that god is present that god is here just as he has always been and that while it looks and might appear to some that god is paused that he is like taking a step back from the world and letting things kind of get crazy in it we should remember that god has a purpose for everything there is nothing that god does not know god does not see god's plan cannot be confounded And we look to him and we trust him just as Elisha told Gehazi, his servant, look around you and see all the heavenly host, all the heavenly army that is protecting us. Do not be afraid of the world. Do not be afraid of the enemy. Do not be afraid of anything around us because we are surrounded by an army of angels, because we are surrounded by God and God's power is supporting us at all times. And glory be to God forever. Amen.